This morning, you have your bulletins. We're headed to John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. I'm going to teach, uh, preach through 10 verses this morning, so hold on to your britches. We're going to move pretty fast uh, because we have a lot of material to cover, and we've packed a lot into service this morning. I want to point you towards the key verse. You don't have to turn there. I would rather you turn to, to John chapter 1, verse 19 for now. We're going to put the key verse on the, on the screen. Um, Key verse kind of keeps us all tied together and throughout the book of John. It says, Jesus' disciples saw him do many other miraculous signs besides the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life. Fantastic verse. Now, Kind of recap, if you've missed the last two or three uh, Sundays, we have gone through the prologue, verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 1. In that prologue, John begins by introducing every man's God. It doesn't matter what your background is. He is hooking you and he's drawing you in. If you believe in a higher power, he's describing that in the first, uh, first five verses anyways, he, that he uses that. He talks about the God who stands outside of time and space, the God who created Everything that exists, the God who gave life and light to everyone, the God who became human to reveal himself to us. He demonstrated his unfailing love and faithfulness to humanity, yet he was rejected by those who he had created, even his own people. But for those who did believe, for those who did accept him as God, he gave the right to be reborn into the spiritual reality of the eternal God. That's pretty good. If you missed the last couple of weeks, too bad. Uh, I don't even think last week recorded, so you're completely out of luck. I'll preach it again in about 15 years. All right. Uh, the whole point of all that is God has revealed himself to us. Now we are to verse 19. Okay, that was the quick recap. Verse 19, we begin the actual narrative of John's gospel. Now keep in mind, John is not just telling a story. He is writing this for the purpose that you might believe. Good job. Some of you are like, what, read it, read it? I don't know. Believe. That's the purpose. So the stories that John tells, because we just read in our, our key verse, he didn't tell us all the stories. He's, he selected these stories. He selected these teachings to repeat. He arranged this information so intentionally designed to point you toward believing that God desires to be in a right relationship with you. And he has made provision as well for, for that to happen by coming to earth in the flesh in, in the man called Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the one and only giver of eternal life. This passage of Scripture that we're beginning is a narrative. Um, I know this is the dull part of sermons where we talk about literary genres. Whatever, Brett. We did this in junior high. We tried. We got tested, and now we forget about it. Don't want to hear about it again. But literary genres are important in Scripture because uh, whenever we read a narrative, it's an opportunity for us to insert ourselves into the story. Put yourself in their shoes. We ask questions like, who is doing what? 
What's, what's happening in this story? What's the facts that are happening? What are these people thinking? And what are, their, what are they feeling? You know, the Bible narratives, they tell us about how people are feeling. I have a hang-up about there's certain aspects, for certain groups of people in Christianity are now that we can't get emotional about Christianity. <laughs> Jesus died for your sins. If you don't get emotional about that, you are the tin man. Because my wife accuses me of being the tin man every once in a while. What are the surrounding circumstances in their lives and their faith? What's going on? Does the location of this story impact what it means to me? Why is the story included in this narrative? How does the story fit into the overall narrative? Did y'all write those down? I'm kidding. I was going really fast because this is important, but we got to get through it, okay? So all these questions to get involved in the narrative. I like narratives because we can emotionally insert ourselves into the story. These events elicit happiness. Some of them will elicit sadness or guilt or maybe excitement, maybe even pain. But the point is that as we read through these stories, you are going to feel inside of you an emotion. God created us with an intellect, but he also created us with emotions. Our relationship with God is intellectual and it is emotional. So we're not going to just be one-sided about this. Here we go. Say this real loud. My title is... <laughs> Sorry, I left my magic wand at home. Here we go. My title is... God is here. <laughs> See, it's not fair because I've been getting amped up all week long about this. So whenever you read it, you're just like, yeah, God is here. And Brent has to put an exclamation point at the end of it because he's all wound up. Do you believe that God is actually here? Do you think that that's a little bit of a crazy statement? I mean, if you just was walked up to somebody in Walmart and said, hey, you know what? Standing in the produce aisle, God is here. They'd be like, yeah, call the wagon, the, what do they call it, the paddy wagon? <laughs> call the crazy people. Come on, get this guy. He's lost his, God is here. Doo -doo -doo -doo. John is going to describe the events of four days in the remainder of chapter one. Each day reveals, John is going to reveal a unique aspect of John. I mean, pardon me, an aspect of God. I'm thinking ahead of my words. Each day, John reveals a unique aspect of God. Uh, I really get, I don't know why, I get excited about the literature of Scripture as time goes by. I'm reading through this, and I'm thinking, so John, remember we have Peter, James, and John, the apostles, and what was their occupation before they became disciples? They're fishermen. These, these are as blue-collar guys as they come. And not super educated, not like Paul that went to college. We have John's just a, he comes to Christ as a young man. He's a fisherman. He's just, he's just a good guy, right? And now he's writing the gospel of John. And he writes it in a literal, literary sense. It is brilliant. The first 18 verses, it's a hook to every single person in the universe for all time. That's amazing. And then he begins this narrative, and he's going to organize it in a way where he's going to tell about four days in the life of Jesus that reveal an aspect, one single aspect, about the eternal God. 
And he does it. He just takes a a day out of the life of Jesus, and he says, this is what happened today, and it's glorious. So whenever I read this, I'm... Uh, Thomas, he gets the unabridged version of my sermon during the week sometimes. Either Thomas or Diane. Pray for Diane, she's sick. Uh, so she's not here today. Anyway, so Thomas and I are talking about it. And, and you, have, you have John, just this blue-collar guy, writing brilliant literature. Or you have the Holy Spirit using just a regular guy. And it, this is God's word to you and I. It doesn't matter how you slice that, it's miraculous what we have in the Word of God. And it gets me all excited about it. Hopefully it will excite you later this afternoon as you think about it. Here we go. On the first day that John is going to record here, John courageously declares, God is here. Number one, John is not the Messiah. Here, get your your imagination going and envision what's going to happen. Here we go. Verse 19, it says, this was John's testimony. Pardon me. John the Baptist's testimony, to be specific. This was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants. There was probably some priests, some assistant priests, the Levites, some of your translations say. So you kind of have the priest and some praise team. They go and, and they're, they go out into the wilderness to talk to John, okay? So the temple assistants from Jerusalem, so from the center point of, Ju- of Judaism, uh, from Jerusalem to ask John, John the Baptist, they're going to ask him, who are you? He came right out and he said, I am not the Messiah. So back in verses six and seven, the writer of the apostle John, he tells us about God is going to send a messenger. His name is going to be John the Baptist, and he's coming to tell about the light that is going to come, right? If you were here, you remember that, hopefully. This is John the Baptist. He has been preaching out in the wilderness about people's need to turn to God and to stop sinning. The Jewish leaders, they hear about this and they're unsure of exactly what John the Baptist is up to. John could be the Messiah himself. Or he may just be another crazy guy gathering a bunch of followers, and then he's going to oppose the Jewish leaders. So the Jewish leadership, they want to investigate this situation. So they organize some representatives, the associate pastor and the praise team, and they go out to question John the Baptist. Now remember, John the Baptist is a guy with a burly beard. He has a big leather belt. He lives out in the wilderness. He preaches out in the wilderness. He eats, eats bugs and honey. So you can see why the Jewish leaders stayed at home. (laughs) Men of great faith. (laughs) Send the staff. (laughs) Let them figure it out. But we got to figure out what's going on. So the Jewish leadership sent these, these representatives for the express purpose of this group of in, the express purpose of this group of interrogators was to find out if John the Baptist was claiming to be or even possibly really was the Messiah. They're on a mission, okay? So a little bit of background that you need to know. The Jews, the Jewish leaders here, they're not just having a spur-of-the-moment idea. They were acting on their expectations based on what Isaiah, the prophets Isaiah and Malachi had already told them way back when. 
God was going to send some special person, some special someone who is powerful and from the lineage of King David. He was going to come. You have uh, uh, Isaiah and Malachi both had prophesied. You also have some, you have a whole bunch of prophecies about the Messiah is going to come. So they go and they're, they're, they know that someone is coming. They just don't know if this is the right man or not. So they're going out to look and ask and see, interrogate and figure out the situation. Most Jews were expecting a deliverer of the people of Israel, someone who would be a military or political deliverer. The reason for that is that Rome was occupying Jerusalem and the entire region of the Judea where the Jews lived. So you have this Jewish population of people, but the Romans had come in and occupied them, and they were, uh, they were ruling over them, and they were taxing the Jews. So the Jews were oppressed by Rome. The Old Testament refers to this deliverer as the anointed one, is the literal translation, the anointed one. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is Messiah. When we get to the New Testament, we move from Hebrew to Greek, and the Greek word is, a bunch of Bible scholars, Christ. In the Old Testament, you have a Messiah. In the New Testament, you have Christ. It's the same thing, the anointed one. Are you with me? So we'll use those words interchangeable. I don't do it to be confusing. Sometimes I say Messiah just to point out that he, this is rooted in the Old Testament. Sometimes I say Christ to point to this is a New Testament concept as well. Are you with me? Same meaning, one is Old Testament, one is New Testament. Don't get weirded out because you're like, Brent, my translation is different than yours. It doesn't matter, all right? It was one is in Hebrew, one is in Greek, yet we are all speaking English. So it's totally messed up. You'll be okay, all right? The Jews were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They were anticipating the coming of the Christ. They were longing for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. Why? Because they wanted to be set free from Rome. There is what's called liberation theology. You need to know this. This is terribly important. <laughs> it's not important at all. It has, inf it has influenced certain groups in America, liberation theology. And it is the idea that, that Jesus has come to, liber to liberate us from any type of suffering. And that's just not biblical. That was a little asterisk in the whole message this morning. All right. John the Baptist, he makes it clear. They come to him and they say, who are you? And he says, I just want to tell you straight up, right up front and emphatically, I am not the Christ. Of course, they probably assume that when they walked up on him and he's picking a locust leg out of his teeth. They're like, oh, I hope this isn't him. Really? Is this the guy God sent? No. John says, I am not the Christ. They say, verse 21... Well, then who are you, they asked. Are you Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we're expecting? No. Again, through the Old Testament prophets, God has told Israel that Elijah was another prophet who would come to Israel to give them guidance. In Deuteronomy, he tells us, I'm going to send you a prophet that's going to be filled with the word of God. And Malachi says, Elijah's going to come back. Now, Elijah's kind of significant because he never died. Chariot of fire came. He got caught in the whirlwind. He was gone. Pretty fantastic story, isn't it? Yeah. So, so Elijah, the Jews are expecting Elijah to come back at some point in time. John the Baptist says, 
I am neither one. I'm not the prophet that is uh, prophesied in Deuteronomy, and I am not Elijah that's prophesied in Malachi. So now these, the associate pastor and the praise team, they're getting a little bit frustrated. We come to verse 22, and they say, then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us, or they're going to give us a hard time. It's not what the scripture says, but you understand. What do you have to say about yourself? Verse 23, John replied, in the words of the prophet Isaiah. I like this. John's a man with a little bit of an attitude. They ask him a direct question. He never answers their question. He says, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness. I think we read this last week. Clear the way for the Lord's coming. Now, we know what's going to happen. So that gives me chills. These people, if they were listening, they would have been, oh, man, this just got real. In true John the Baptist style, he does not even use his own words. He uses the words of the prophet Isaiah. He says, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord's coming. John the Baptist, he says, listen, guys, I am not the Messiah. I am not the light. I am simply the one, the voice that God has sent ahead. Are you listening? I'm the voice that God has sent ahead of the Messiah, ahead of the light, to announce to the world that God will be here soon. Here, God of heavens and earth will be here. Number two, you are missing the point. You are missing the point. Then the Pharisees, verse 24, then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, if you aren't the Messiah, they're still hung up on this, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet what right do you have to baptize? And so now they're really messing with John the Baptist. And you know he has a concealed to carry permit in that big leather belt. <laughs> really? You're going to mess with this man? That's not all true, by the way. What right do you have to baptize? John told them, I baptize with water. But envision this. John is there. We haven't told you where he's at yet. The text hasn't got that far yet. Jesus is there with a bunch of people. He's baptizing. He's preaching. This group of people, the associate pastor and the praise team, they all come walking up. Who are you? I'm not who you think I am. Pipsqueak, right? What right do you have to baptize? And he says, I baptize with water. But look around. Are you envisioning this? There's a crowd of people. The priests. Levites, but right here, everyone say here. here, in this crowd, in the crowd, is someone you do not recognize. Verse 27, though his ministry follows mine, I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. John the Baptist tells these representatives of the Jews that God is here. And they totally miss it. 
These guys are so focused on accomplishing their task that they miss the point. They were sent to find out who John is, where he's from, who sent him, whether or not he's the Messiah. But when John doesn't fit into their preconceived mold, they get a little antagonistic. If you aren't the Messiah, John, or should we call him Harry? If you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, then what right do you have to baptize people? Did you get your ordination papers from Jerusalem? And John's like, dude, I don't know. I just got lunch in my pocket. Right? You don't dress right, John. You don't look right, and your message does not coincide with what the Pharisees are teaching and preaching. Who gave you the right to baptize, to dunk people in the water? But John the Baptist, he's a manly man. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't care. He's got bigger things on his mind than water baptism and who has the authority to baptize. John is on mission for God. He says, I baptize with water. Now, that we haven't put that into perspective yet, but he's about to here in a few minutes. Well, actually, he kind of does in this text. He says, I baptize with water. This is as physical, this is as mundane, this is as simple as baptism gets. In the Old Testament, they baptized with oil. They anointed with oil. They poured oil over people's heads. He says, now I immerse people in the river. Take them out to the river, dunk them, and, and that, that's it. But right here, the bigger issue, but, it's this connective word, this contrast. I baptize. I do baptize with water. You come and accuse me. Who gives you authority to baptize in water? I do baptize in water. But the bigger issue is that right here in the crowd, you guys, pay attention. Listen to me. Forget about the water baptism. It's just a river. Right here in the cloud is someone you do not recognize. His ministry, it will follow mine, but I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. There is someone right here among us that is great, like supernatural God great. Well, who gave you authority? Shut up and listen to me. There's somebody great here. Well, we want to know. No. I need you to know, John, again, he points to the fact that God is here. These messengers, they're concerned with who gives authority to baptize in water, and it's so insignificant. John is, I think if I was John, I would be waving my hands around in their faces and shouting, hey, you're missing the bigger issue here. You're concerned about who I am. You should be concerned about the one who is much greater than I am, who is present. I baptize people in water. There is one who is here, present, here, who baptizes people in the Spirit, causing them to be reborn into the spiritual kingdom of God. John's like, I get people wet. There's somebody here that can transform your eternity. And you're missing the point. You're missing the point. God, creator of heavens and earth, who breathes life into everything that is living, is in this crowd. And you're worried about Harry me. Get over your silly selves. Church, 
listen to me carefully. Don't miss the point. God is here. He has come to deliver mankind, to forgive us of sin, to bring peace into our lives. Don't lose focus of what is the main thing. Don't miss the point. The point is that God is present. He is here. Once we focus on God, because I know that some of you are thinking, well, Brent, if, we only, if the only point is that God is present, then who's going to argue with all the other theologians that are wrong? Who's going to argue with the media? Who's going to argue with liberalism? Who's going to argue with those denominations that are doing crazy things right now? Who is going to stand for truth? And John says, you're missing the point. Instead of arguing, God is here. When we focus on God, listen to me carefully. When you focus on God, all the other things that have a way of coming, uh, let me back up. When we focus on God, all the other things in life have a way of coming into focus correctly. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, right? Well, Brent, whenever I get the government straightened out, then we can be Christians. Oh, my goodness, God is here and you're going to go fix something that's been broken since its inception? You're a genius. And I say that as sarcastically as I possibly can. Read between the lines. <laughs> right? Sorry, somebody, I just made some of you mad. <laughs> I've, been, I've been on Facebook all week fixing the government. <laughs> yes, you have. Good job. You need a sign. The point is, God is here. The things of this earth, provision, frustrations, arguments, the things of this earth that seem so important become much less important in the light of the presence of God. Does that make sense? God shows up. Lunch can wait, right? God shows up, my frustration with whoever drank the last cup of coffee, whatever, it's insignificant, it's no big deal. When God shows up baptizing in water and who gives authority, who cares? Yet, here's my little soapbox, I shouldn't tell you, I actually took this out of my notes because I wasn't going to tell you. One of my pet peeves is Christians arguing over peripheral theological issues, we sacrifice our Christ-likeness to be right. Lord, help us. The point is, God is here. John pleads with these men. They came so concerned about who John the Baptist was that they missed who John was talking about. John knew that the Christ was standing in this crowd. How did he know it? Jesus is his cousin or his second cousin. I don't remember exactly what it is. He's related. They grew up together. Talked about this a little bit last week. They had probably wrestled around together. They had traveled together. John the Baptist has, has grown up watching the life of Jesus, and he knows that Jesus is not just a regular young man. He's different. 
Jesus, John the Baptist knew that the Christ, the Messiah, the prophesied one, the anointed one, was standing right here in this crowd. Right here was a man who was so great that John the Baptist says, I am not worthy to be his slave. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. John the Baptist is trying to get these men who are challenging him to recognize, to accept to believe that the Messiah, the Christ, God, is here. You have the opportunity to get his autograph. And they were distracted. As far as we know, they were so busy looking for something else that they missed the point. They stood in a crowd with the Christ, but they didn't recognize him. You remember that's what John writes in the prologue, that he came to, to his people and his own people rejected him. Number three, I may finish on time. Or I could slow down. The Messiah is here. Now, some of you may be listening to this and you're saying, really, Britt, you took a Sunday to tell us that God is here. Yes, yes, partly because John does. But I'm sold on this because in America, we have this familiarity with, well, it falls one of two directions with, we don't really believe that God is God anyway, and so whatever. We need to tell people God is here. On the other hand, you have the church, and they're like, yeah, God's here. No big deal. Seriously? It's no big deal? God shows up, and we're like, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Could sure use another donut. <laughs> really? I mean, oh. John wrote this so that we would believe, not just accepted it as truth and be like, yeah, it doesn't affect me. No, 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 no. He wrote this to us, to you, so that you would believe and it would transform the way you live your life. So this is a profound verse, verse 28. This encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. Mmm, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> this encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. Now, I'm reading through this, and I'm reading through the first part, and I'm, I'm still amped up about the prologue, and now I'm reading that John is telling these guys, listen, there's, God is standing here among us. Why can't you see? And my first thought is, Apostle John, this is very random that you would interrupt this great narrative to give Basically, the biblical, biblical equivalent of a GPS coordinates. Really? This is... But slow down and think for just a second. It's kind of like John is saying, he's told this big story. John the Baptist has told this story, and John the Apostle is repeating it. And so it'd be easy to be like, it's hearsay. It didn't really happen. What? But then he says... This encounter took place at Bethany, not the Bethany close to Jerusalem, but the Bethany that's east of Jordan River where John was baptizing. We know exactly where this happened. 
It's kind of like whenever, guys, you'll relate. Women, I have no understanding of you, so I'm not even going to try for it. But guys, we tell a story about we shot a trophy elk, and we're telling this whole story. And you know, at some point, one of the men around you is going to say, sure, where'd you shoot it? And you're going to say, I shot it in Largo Canyon. And that other person's going to go, oh, I know Largo Canyon. Maybe the story's true. It legitimizes it, right? I come and tell you, I caught a fish this big. And you're like, where did you catch a fish that big? Because I've been out there at the pond by your house, Brent. You don't have fish this big. You know how big the one-armed fisherman caught? He caught a fish this big. <laughs> Sorry, that probably wasn't politically correct, was it? Uh, I think it's funny, though. Anyway, <laughs> it's a bad joke. Moving on. We tell, I caught a fish, caught it this big. Where'd you get? I caught it in Kitty Hole. Well, anybody who's familiar with San Juan and, the, and quality water, they're like, Kitty Hole, really? Yeah. Texas Hole? Yeah. I've been there. I've caught fish. I only caught fish this big, uh, but never caught one that big. So maybe it's true. There is a certain amount of legitimacy that comes with saying, you know where this story happened. You're familiar. Uh, some of you ladies, you have this big purse, and you're like, I, got, I bought this purse. It was $200, and I got it for $25. And your friends say, where? <laughs> Dillard's. They had the 50% off the 50% off sale. <laughs> I walked in thinking it was going to be free. <laughs> I think it's funny. <laughs> I thought it was going to be free. It's 50% off the 50% off. That's 100%. It's not the way it works. It's embarrassing the first time you do that, though. Because <laughs> if you take stuff off the shelf on the 50% off, the 50% off sale, and you walk out the door, they will come and get you. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Uh, no, they really will come and get you. I had, I did, that didn't happen to me. John tells us this took place in Bethany, east of the Jordan River. I'm going to put a map up so you can see this. We have so many things about our scriptures that prove over and over that our scriptures are true and accurate. This is one of them. Whenever John says this happened to Bethany, we can go to Bethany. There are some religions that have scriptures that have places that don't exist. That's a problem. Okay, so here on the left side, you see the big place is Judea. Uh, right south of that, you have uh, Jerusalem. And to the east of that, yep, it would be to the east is Bethany. And Bethany appears in the, the gospel stories relatively often. The less familiar is Bethany over here between the two white boxes. Hopefully you can see that. I started to bring my laser pointer, but I didn't. Uh, you have Bethany beyond the Jordan. So over here on the east side of the Jordan River is Bethany. John tells us that this was, uh, it was close to the, this, the story happened close to the town of Bethany. It is on the, the Bethany that's on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, we don't live there. We're not close. But we could go to that area and we could be in the very close vicinity, the same dirt that John the Baptist was baptizing people in a river and that these other, the, the, the priests and the Levites came and the story happened. We could go stand in that, that area. We don't know exactly where Jesus was standing. You understand my point. I don't, wanna, I don't want to make it too grand, like we could stand in the footprints of Jesus. No, we don't know that. 
But we know, we know that it happened at Bethany or right outside of Bethany. We can go to that place. We're not making this up. This isn't some fantastic fairy tale. This is a very real place. So whenever John, sorry, get all wound up. Here we go. You're saying, but Brent, so what? Don't preach from the book of maps. We don't care. I'll tell you what. We live in a world of doubters. Progressively more, where we say, well, this is from the Bible, and it's immediately disqualified because it's from the Bible. That's a problem, that that's the perspective of our, the Word of God. We live in a world of doubters, in a time when people boldly declare that there is no God. They boldly declare that there is no God because they haven't seen Him, and they don't know anybody who has seen Him. Yet you and I have the testimony of John the Baptist who said, I stood right here in the river just outside of Bethany on the east side of the Jordan and the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God stood in that crowd that day in that place. I am telling you that I saw that God is here. Pretty amazing. This information is not vague. It's not fuzzy. It is absolute. If John the Baptist was here today, he could take us to the place he was standing on whenever he told these people, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. We have the geography. We know the place where John says God is, the God that he's been explaining in the first 18 verses is here. He has shown his unfailing love and faithfulness to his created people by showing up, being present with them, and revealing himself in a very common way to them so that they might, what? believe, that they would believe in him, that they would accept him, and that they would be reborn and become children of the living God. Church, we all come this morning. I look around, I see faces for the first time here, and I see faces that have known me since my kids were very small. Some of you have been in church for a long time. Some of you have not been in church for very long. We do not take for granted that God is here. He's not a faraway God. He's a God that is present with his people. He's right here. And no matter what we need from him, when we sang a while ago, oh, come to the altar. God is just, his arms are open wide and he's saying, come to me. I don't know where you're at in your faith walk. I don't know what the problems and the chaos of your life is, but God is here. Like, Brent, I feel like I'm walking alone sometimes. And John the Baptist says, you're missing the point. No, God is here. Well, Brent, why do I feel all alone? I don't know. Read the scriptures. Make a habit of praying. Make a habit of, of making a date with God. You know? Sacrifice some TV time and make a date with God. Open up your Bible and read and pray. And I promise you, God will be right here in your life as well. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, 
we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of John. Lord, we thank you that you are not a distant God that we have to shout out to, that we have to wonder where you're at or if you're paying attention, but your word tells us that you're a present God. And when we have a need, we share our need with you. And because you see all things, know all things, and you're all powerful, we can believe that that regardless of the chaos of our perspective, that you are the God over all and you demonstrate your unfailing love and you demonstrate your faithfulness to us and that you care for us in a way that always brings glory to our creator, to our savior, to our deliverer. Lord, I thank you that we can surrender our lives to you, trusting that you are a loving, a caring, a graceful and merciful God. Lord, I pray that as we live out this week, that we not live out this week missing the point, focusing on the wrong things, or living in fear. But Lord, we live with the confidence that every moment you are here. You are with us in every way. We reach out and we touch you and you work in our lives and you are glorified in us and through us. Lord, I thank you for your word today. Be exalted in every one of our lives as we go out and we live. Help us to share this light that you have brought into our lives with other people so that they can live in the presence of Almighty God as well. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.